0: into The bit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is theology out of Pittsburgh, unlike a bottomless pit, where when you fall into a bottomless pit, of course you die of dehydration. But this is a theological pit, so we are going to keep you well fed. We're going to kind of feed your brain, we're going to get you thinking about a lot of things. And we've been doing this series on salvation, or more specifically, on the application of the atonement, on justification. What does it mean to be made right with God? What does it mean to be just? And this is a huge topic, as you're noticing. I mean, here's part eight in this idea, and we're just starting to get to, you know, what Today, and and I think on the last pit also, what we would start to recognize as how the atonement has been explained to us, depending on the tradition that we come from, um, hopefully you could see the elements of it if I didn't specifically um, address it. We dealt with the uh, moral example theory in the last pit, and I'm not going to deal with that um, today. Uh, We're going to be talking a lot about the um, satisfaction view of the atonement, um, also known as the uh, uh, sacramental view of the atonement. And this might take a little while to get through because um, there are so many things that are going on when it comes to liturgical worship, when it comes to the whys of of what's going on, of, of what's happening. And I think a lot of times we miss those whys because there is, within tradition, you can have tradition and then traditionalism. And traditionalism is where you just do things because you've always done it and it's lost its meaning. You have no idea what it means anymore. But tradition itself has meaning behind it. It has a reason why you're doing it. Now, if you're in a situation where something is tradition and you don't know why... And you're saying, "Well, I guess I'm, you know, kind of a traditionalist in that way." Instead of abandoning your uh, current mode of worship that you're doing, your service that you're doing, rediscover the why behind it. It's it's much richer and it's much fuller than uh, than you might think. So, we're going to be talking about the um, the satisfaction view of the atonement. We're going to be discussing a lot about. Um, you know, the, uh, more along the lines of the Roman Catholic view, as opposed to the Protestant view. Now, some of this is going to spill over into Protestantism a little bit, but the Roman Catholic view is the big one we're going to look at today. Okay, so... Part of the problem within theology that we have is that whenever we say that we're going to do things, and we say that well, we're going to write something ironically, meaning peacefully, we're going to do ironic theology. Um, that's where we try to accurately represent all the views, and then at the same time, we're showing why we think that our view is better, and why you know we should hold to our view, and how other views are wrong. Now. Whenever it gets into that, that's called polemics, but it's like a warlike theology. And usually polemics can get really, really nasty. You know, people saying that other Christians are not saved, people saying that, well, they're outside of the, the church, um, you know, that they, you know, that they're going to hell, that, you know, this they're the antichrist, um, that if you hold to this particular view, then there's something wrong with you, and you know, all sorts of stuff. And I'm going I'm doing my best to not do that. Even though a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about today, I disagree with. I've on this particular topic, though, y- years ago, um, I kind of wanted to understand why the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, thought what it thought, believed what it believed. What were the what was the reasoning behind it? Um, not that I was looking to convert. I'm I'm not a Roman Catholic. Um, so I, I obviously don't agree with all this stuff, but um I don't want that to hinder my education because in contrast there's clarity. So I'm gonna do my best today to passionately advocate for this view. I'm gonna talk about where it it comes from when it comes to the application of the atonement and how it all fits together. Now, you're going to start to see if you've gone through all the other podcasts, if you listen to all the other podcasts and what we've been building up to, why I spent so much time discussing the differences between justification and sanctification, okay? Why I was trying to make an, an emphasis on where that division is, what that division means, Why I spent entire podcasts discussing original sin. Why I spent entire podcasts discussing free will. The reason being is because all of this stuff comes together, okay? When we get to to this point in um, church history, whenever we are talking about this thing called the satisfaction view of the atonement or the sacramental view of the atonement, we have moved up into the... 11th 12th 13th century okay this is where we're at and you remember that the only real models that we had before this were the ransom to satan view of the atonement where by christ dying on the cross he then paid a ransom to satan in order to redeem mankind and to free mankind and that's how we were we were bought the god who the god who bought us uh, where we get that expression from, where that comes from in Scripture, this, this understanding of this, this redemption, someone being redeemed uh, as though as a, a, a price was paid. Also, the other view was the recapitulation view of the atonement that we talked about. And that was the one where Jesus had to live a perfect life. And recapitulate, redo everything that Adam was supposed to do, that he didn't do, in order to represent us. Now, some of those views held on a little bit longer than others. The Ransom to Satan view, I would argue people still today, misunderstandingly, hold on to it. And it's, it's not that it's a completely wrong view, it's just that its emphasis is in the wrong place. On uh, on on Satan, it shouldn't be on Satan. Satan ha- doesn't have this kind of power. Uh, the the ransom is to is to God. The recapitulation view, I think it's fallen away also. But I think uh, I think with with both of these views, we really threw the baby out with the bathwater. Modern day. Um, but as we start moving into this satisfaction view, or this from now on, I'm I'm going to refer to it as the sacramental view because we're going to be talking about the sacraments a lot um, in in this podcast. Um, so the sacramental view, I'm going to kind of give a definition of it that I've given in the past, but I need to get myself in the mindset of a Roman Catholic here, and and uh, you know I want to kind of push back against some things that I've said and, you know, pull you guys in further into what we're going to be discussing here. Now, the the sacramental system or the satisfaction theory, I've defined it. um, I've taken this definition from a a Protestant um, definition, okay? I didn't take this from a Catholic definition, which was probably my fault to begin with. But it's that man's sinfulness has wounded God's honor. God, out of necessity, restored his honor by sending Christ, both God and man, who restored his honor and gained a reward that he did not need since he had everything. This reward is offered to man in the form of merit and grace. Okay? Adherence to this is, of course, the Roman Catholics and uh, uh, St. Anselm. Or I guess it's just Anselm. I don't think he was uh, has a sainthood next to him. He may. I, I'm not sure. But uh, but this is what, what's also known as the Latin view of the atonement because you had the Greek view and the Latin view. And it's basically that what happened was whenever Christ lived the perfect life, he stored up these merits. And I I, I gave the illustration of the coin machine with the mechanical arm moving and pushing the coins up and only pushes them so far. And that, you know, Christ then gives us the coin. He's the one that's filled it because it's his merits that have done this. As God, he has these limitless amounts of merits. So not only is it limitless in the fact that when we put them in, we get them out. Now, I want to clarify something that may be in your mind, that it's an individualistic idea. That this this game where we're putting the the, the coin in and we're getting a coin out is just you by yourself doing it, when this isn't the case. You have the entire church behind you. You have everybody that's doing this. Everybody that, if they put a coin in and it comes out, whatever comes out from there can be then distributed to you. It's not as though you're by yourself sitting there doing that. It's a collective. So the church, as a collective, is able to then gather up these merits, okay, this this grace that God has given, and distribute it, all right? So it's all by the work of God, but it's specifically through the church alone, because Christ is the one who founded the church. He's the one that put this in place. He's the one that this is all for. This is why we we do all this stuff. this is why we we understand why we why we study, why we um, go to mass, why we go to confession, why we baptize and when we're thinking about this and we're talking about this, really, what Christ has provided with us is salvation from cradle to grave. It starts out with our baptism, and our baptism is original sin being washed away. Because as we pointed out with St. Augustine, we have original sin, okay? That this sin needs to be removed. It has to be taken care of, this, this sin of Adam. And the fact that if it's not taken care of, if it's not removed, then we still have it. It's still there. So Christ provided a way, and through the waters of baptism, this is then, the, the sin is then washed away from us. So you're, you're having your sins washed away, and then you're being brought into the community at the same time, okay? In Jewish society, whenever you would convert to Judaism, there were a couple things that you needed to do. One of them was, you, if you were a man, you had to be circumcised. The other one that you had to do was you had to make a sacrifice and then you had to be baptized. Now, the baptism is not the same as Christian baptism, not only philosophically, but also in a physical sense that we, and and, in Christianity, baptize each other into the church. We are baptizing people and bringing them in. Within Judaism, you're bringing yourself in, in a way. You're baptizing yourself. You go into a pool of water and you wash up. And it's to signify that you're washing away the old and you are you know, a, a new creature and that you are new. You're washing away your old life. And this is all symbolic and this is all happening. And this was a, what's known as a type and shadow of baptism of what people did. But the reality now after Christ of what's going on is the sin of Adam is being taken care of. The sin of Adam is being washed away from you. Now, again, I want to remind you that within this view, within Roman Catholicism, we are talking about a sanative view of grace, okay? Again, think of the word sanitary. Something is being poured into you. Grace is coming into you, which is changing you. Okay, it is God saving you through this process. All right, it's not that the priest who is sprinkling you with water is saving you. It's not that when you go to confession, the priest is absolving you from your sins. Only God can do that. The priest is giving you absolution, which means he is letting you know that your sins have been forgiven he's not taking them. He's not the one forgiving them. He's not doing that. We already have a high priest that has done that and a sacrifice that has done that within Christ. So, in that aspect of it, uh, the, the role of the priest is just to let you know and to deliver through him he is, he is uh, uh, partly like a vessel. The church is like a vessel in which God's grace flows through, and it flows through to you, and it comes into you, and it starts the process of justification. It is a progressive justification, and it's a progressive sanctification. You are being made holy. You are being made just, and baptism is the beginning of it. It's the first, very first step that's happening. Now, after baptism, you would have confirmation. And confirmation is this next step. It's where you, having been raised in this society, in this, um, in this, in this church, in this group of people, in this congregation, you are being, you've been brought in. It's a different understanding than what we have in the Western culture of individualism of I'm choosing to walk into something. No, you've been brought in. And now that you've been brought in, the question gets posed to you. Do you really believe this? Do you agree with this? Are you confirming to the faith that you have been taught? This is a a conscious decision on your part that, yes, you are doing that. And by doing that, by accepting that, more of God's grace Is coming upon you now. Normally, after um, you have this confirmation, your first communion takes place. You partake of the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ, and this is very important because now you have taken the step to uphold the teaching of the Church, to remain in this body, and you are welcomed at the Lord's table. In order it's almost as though you've reached adulthood in this sense that you can now do these things where God's grace is freely being given to you. And it's by his grace alone that you are being justified. It's by his grace alone that you are being sanctified, that you are moving through uh, life. And that... God is strengthening you. When you go to mass, you're being strengthened. When you are partaking of the Eucharist, you are being strengthened. God's grace is being given to you. Okay. Whenever you, another sacrament is marriage. Whenever you get married, then that is another part that's coming through to you. Um, I already mentioned, I think I mentioned penance. I may not have within, within confession. There's also, there's also penance. Um, and then there is, uh, there's, there's uh, holy unction, I believe uh, that's what it's called, at the end of, of life where you're anointed with oil. Um, and uh, then there's, there's holy orders also that uh, go along with that if you went into the priesthood. And these are all means of grace, but the one that we're really going to focus on today— and not so much baptism. I know that I, I said a lot there about baptism, and I know a lot of people are—they don't agree with a—what's um, called paedobaptism, baptism an infant baptizer, um, that they may be credo-baptists or anabaptists. Uh, credo-baptism means a believer's baptism. anabaptist baptist means a, a, a baptized again, rebaptizers. Um, the difference would be that a, um, a, a credo-baptist would be someone who— they don't baptize people until they have come to know Christ and expressed their willingness for him to be their Lord and Savior, their, their repentance of their sinfulness and Satan and all of his wicked ways, and then uh, they are baptized. That would be a believer's baptism. Slightly different than an Anabaptist. An Anabaptist would do the exact same thing, uh, to be honest, the only difference is, is that a Credo Baptist, if you have been baptized as a as an infant, they would not require you to be baptized as an adult. Um, they would say, "No, your confession is fine. Baptism is not what saves you, anyways. You have been baptized." Here's what it is. If you want to be baptized again, they would probably encourage it and say, sure, go ahead. Um, personally, I'm going to speak out of my uh, Roman Catholic persona here. Um, I was rebaptized. Um, looking back on it, I, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. Um, I am, in fact, a, a paedio now. I was raised a paedio-baptist. Um, I was at a church where um, I was being convinced of... Um, an Anabaptist viewpoint, but a but specifically on Anabaptism and Credo-Baptism only, that was it, and a lot of emphasis was put on works, a lot of emphasis, and that was within a charismatic Pentecostal church. You had a lot of of that meriting God's favor in that way, rather than meriting God's favor in the way that we're talking about today with the sacraments. So an Anabaptist would say that you have to be Rebaptized, if you were baptized as a child, that's where the A N A in the beginning of the the word uh, means re. So they would say you have to be rebaptized. Where a Credo Baptist may not say that. A Credo Baptist would say, no, you don't have to be rebaptized. It's it's not you know that important. It's not it's not that big of a deal. So. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, and I, I say that, and I've already spent, a, you know, I think, a, too much time, in, in my opinion, on, on baptism here and the difference. I'll probably do a theology pit sometime on baptism by itself and, and what it all means. But we're going to focus on the, um, the Eucharist, okay, on, on communion, and what that means and why, and this entire sacrificial system. Okay. This this um this this sacrament um you know sacrament meaning um you know mystery uh you know mysterion uh, sacramentum where we get where we're getting the word uh, sacrament from uh we're gonna be talking about why do we do this okay if this is traditionalism we just do it out of uh, you know no reason that there's no reason behind it then we can throw it away. If there is reason behind it, I think that we need to take a closer look at what the reason is and why. And we have to, in order to get a, an understanding of this, the, the concept of a sacrifice. Because Christ is our high priest and he is our king and he is our sacrifice. For a lot of today and maybe within the next um, theology pits, depending on how long we stay here, I'm going to be um, using a book called "The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass," um, written by Father Michael Mueller. I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's a German last name. It's either Mueller or Muller. Um, but uh, he, I think, I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty thick book, and I think it it will help explain a lot of what we're talking about and, and what we actually mean, because a lot of people when, you know, kind of question, do Roman Catholics really believe that that is the body and blood of Christ? I mean, literally the body and blood, the flesh and blood of Jesus is on the altar Sunday mornings in the church. Like as though he was physically here, he's actually here. That's actually him. Well, I'll save you the suspense. Yes. Yes. They actually believe that to the point, to the point that they worship it. When the words of consecration are said and transubstantiation, you know, it, it, the substance underneath it changes and it is the body and blood of Christ. It, 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 that's what it means. It's transformed. It's become by the works performed of the priest ex oper operato, it has become the body and blood of Christ, and it is worshipped, okay? Roman Catholics and good Catholic apologists are not shy about saying this, so I'm not going to be shy about saying it either. This is where Protestants have a huge problem when it comes to the the idea of the Eucharist, because if you are worshipping a piece of bread as though it is God, that is idolatry. They are idol worshipers. Roman Catholic apologists understand that. They've said that. They said, yeah, if we're wrong, we are worshiping bread and wine as though it is God, as though it is deity, as though it is Jesus Christ. But they would say, we don't think that we're wrong at all. In the Westminster Confession, it goes so far to say that no, Roman Catholics are in fact Idol worshippers—they're idolaters. You don't marry into them. You don't intermarry with Roman Catholics. They don't worship God. They—they're idol worshippers. Now, when it comes to being a theist, okay, and especially a Christian theist, there are different kinds of theists. Okay, there are polytheists—people who believe in many gods monotheists, people who believe in one God. There's also henotheists, and henotheism was what Israel was before the, I would say well, yeah, I would say before um, the destruction of the temple in 167 I think it was 165 BC uh, the Maccabean revolt that what you would have is you would have many gods, but Yahweh, he was the greatest of all of them. Okay? With the understanding of Scripture saying about about David, that he was a man after God's own heart, was because a lot of people would have a, a personal God, they would have, you know, a household God, they would have a You know, a a national god, uh, maybe even a city god, those sort of things. Um, Every single one of those categories of who is your god, David would say for every one of them, Yahweh. Other people would have different understandings they would say well no uh, you know baal is my you know my my regional god uh, that i worship but yahweh is my my personal god or yahweh is my national god but you know baal is my personal god like those sort of things and if you said well out of all of them yes yahweh is greater than all of them but these all these other gods do exist that's it's henotheism okay that's a little bit different by changing the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, if it doesn't happen, okay, this isn't a henotheistic understanding. This is a golden calf understanding. And if you go back into Exodus and you look at the golden calf incident, what you have going on is Moses is up on the mountain and all the people are down below and he hasn't come back in a while. And so they... Decide, hey, you know, what we're going to do, we're going to take all of our gold and we're going to throw it in the fire and we're going to fashion ourselves a, an idol, a golden calf. And they do, and it's held up and it said, behold, the Lord, your God who brought you out of Egypt. Okay. So they're not saying that this calf is another God. They're not saying it's a lesser God it's it's a great it's it's a God that's alongside with God they're saying this calf that I'm holding this golden this piece of gold that we formed is Yahweh actually is Yahweh by the works performed we have created a Yahweh we have, here is Yahweh here he is you can see him he's the one that brought us out you know how we were, we were slaves for 400 years and we just Went through, you know, the Red Sea there and it swallowed up the Egyptian army and everything. Yeah, yeah, get this right here. This is what did it. This is Yahweh right here. And of course, when Moses came down, he kind of freaked out about it. And, you know, they were just like, hey, we don't know what happened. We threw our gold into the fire and this calf came walking out. What do you want from me? Um, But that it's it's on that level. okay? that this is this is Yahweh. This is Jesus Christ. This is the second person of the Trinity okay, here on the altar. That's what we're saying. So where the golden calf incident, they made something up and said that it was Yahweh. In the Eucharist, Jesus Christ himself says that this is his body and this is his blood. That this isn't a representation from man that man says this but that God says this and that Jesus being Yahweh Jesus being God who raised himself from the dead God raised him from the dead raised him for our justification to show that he and what he was saying was acceptable to God this is his body and blood. This is it. And you have to partake of this. If you don't partake of this, what hope do you have? You have no hope. This comes from liturgical worship, Jewish liturgy that Jesus engaged in. Liturgy that is spilled over that the church to this day still worships in this this sense the understanding of a physical sacrifice goes all the way back into genesis we have to go back into chapter 3 of genesis we have to look at what was going on with adam and eve and what happened in the garden that's how far back this view that i'm talking about goes Okay, it looks this far back. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, that's when, um, you know, they hid and they made fig leaves for themselves. They realized that they were naked, those sort of things. And I'm going to read this out of my um, Jewish study Bible that I have. Um, it's, It's... from, I I guess we're featuring the Jewish Publication Society, but usually when I go into Old Testament, I like to use a couple different uh, translations. gives me a a bigger picture. I like to use different translations anyways, but when we look at um, Old Testament and we're talking, you know, the Jewish thing, we're looking in the Torah here, um, I like to kind of go there because I'm always curious about how they word things. And so um, this is where we're going to sit for a while and... um, I'm going to pick this up in uh, the, the, the curse that God has. This is his dialogue after um, you know, Eve says to him, the serpent duped me and I ate. Um, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you did this, more cursed shall you be than all the cattle and all the beasts. And on your belly shall you crawl and dirt shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers, they shall strike at your head, and you shall strike at their heel. And to the, women, and to the woman, he said, "I will make most severe your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bear, uh, shall you bear children? And your urge will, uh, your urge. Yet, sorry about that. Yet, your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." Okay, so. What I want to kind of point out in a lot of this is a few interesting things. Number one, this is, sorry, this is um, chapter three, by the way, in, in the book of Genesis, when we looked at verses uh, 14 and 15 and 16, 14, 15, 16, but mostly 14 and 15 is where we're kind of looking at. What happened was that this idea between her offspring and the serpent's offspring, okay? Um, In what's called the Septuagint, this is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, It was uh, commissioned about, I want to say like 70 BC, and it's called the Septuagint because 70... um, 70 scholars Jewish scholars um, translated it whenever they got to this part what they translated the word that they used for, for, for seed or offspring it's the Greek word spermatos and that's really interesting saying it for the serpent is interesting and saying it for the woman is extremely interesting because women don't produce sperm It doesn't happen. This is what makes the virgin birth so unique and in a way necessary for what's happening. That God is saying that he's going to do something that only he can do. Okay? That he is going to, by the seed of the woman bring forth someone who is going to strike at the head of the serpent and the serpent is going to strike their heel. Now, the wording of it, the way that it's, it's to be understood and the way that I understand it, the way I think that it's best understood is that it's not as though it is a, you know, a parry thrust type thing. It's not as though it's a sword battle. I am striking you. You are striking at me. This is going on simultaneously. The serpent is trying to strike, and the and and the offspring is striking at the same time. Okay. The heel is being bruised while the head is being some some say crushed out of it. But you know this is you know strike at it, which is a death blow. A heel strike, not so much a death blow, okay? Now, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, with, with a snake, you know, there's some snake venom that if it hits your heel, it's a death sentence. I mean, it doesn't matter, it just goes in. But what's interesting here is that the word snake isn't used. The imagery that you're getting from it is snake, but the word is serpent. And the word serpent has a very different idea than the word snake. In the book of Revelation, which closely will tie in with the understanding of the Eucharist and the understanding of the liturgy and that sort of thing... Thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money, to us, it's an encouragement. Samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. John, the Apostle, who the Book of Revelation is attributed to, him writing it on the Isle of Patmos, calls Satan the serpent of old. Doesn't call him snake, but it's this understanding of a type of behemoth type, a type of you can almost think like dinosaur or a type of of mythology type thing. I'm not saying that this is mythology. What I'm saying is that they're using mythological imagery in order to convey a reality. You know, it's 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 metaphorical in that sense. There actually is a serpent, but we, you know, it's... The imagery works much better of serpent snake or serpent dragon or, you know, serpent, like, dinosaur to get the effect than, you know, um, the kitten or the puppy or the, you know, any other type of... Cu- the imagery that you're getting is, is something that is threatening, something that is intimidating. Because in the whole garden narrative, you kind of, you know, when the snake is talking, or this snake, yeah, see, see what I did? It's so ingrained in me. When the serpent is talking to Eve, people wonder, well, where's Adam? More than likely, Adam's sitting right next to her. And they're probably both kind of afraid. You don't want to talk back to this thing. This might be something that could that could kill them. They They don't know. I mean... They don't, although, you know, they really don't seem very surprised that this serpent's talking to them. I mean, I don't know. If it is a snake, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, snakes don't talk to me. So, I mean, it, it, you know, but she doesn't seem to be real you know, jumpy about it. Oh, snake's talking, whatever. Um, maybe they just feel, I guess that's what snakes do. I guess that's what serpents do. But the idea is this, um, you know, this, this serpent that has, that has come in. So it's this very evil dragon understanding. Okay. And the offspring, the seed of the woman, as we have seen, or as we see in, um, the book of Isaiah, um, when he prophesies that a young woman will, um, you know, become pregnant and give birth. And Matthew sees that as a virgin birth and then Mary, uh, being, uh, ever virgin by having Jesus fulfills all of this and that it is completely God making this right. That at this point, this is called the proto evangelium, the first gospel gospel means good news. This is where God comes in and immediately says, I know something went wrong. I am going to make it right. There's no way Anybody else can make this right but me. And I'm going to show you how I'm going to do it. That's what's going on here. Now, whenever God arrives in the garden and it says in the breezy time of the day and the man and wife, um, they hid from the Lord. Okay. Adam and Eve hid from the Lord in the trees of the garden in in verse eight there. What you have is this, I think it's called the prima paracea where this this first coming of, of what it's going to be like when God comes. And I think there's some places in Psalms, too, that I, I didn't look up, but it just came to my mind where it talks about the day of the Lord and what it's going to be like. The earth is going to shake. The winds are going to blow. It's going to be tremendous thunder. It's going to be loud and rough. And a a majestic presence is going to be coming. That animals give birth. It's going to be so jarring and so shocking that this type of thing. This is what we're seeing here. Is this kind of thing. And when Christ returns, that's the type of thing that's going to happen again. It's not going to be that people don't know it's going to be on a global scale something is going on something big is happening something that is only godlike is going on and that's what we're getting here in chapter 3 of genesis that this is that this is all taking place now what happened is after God, after all this stuff happens and, and he you know puts the curse on them and, and he curses curses the ground um, and that the man is going to have to work by the sweat of his brow in order to eat and those sort of things. Um, in verse 21, chapter 3, it says, And the Lord God made garments of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them, which means a sacrifice had to be made. Their shame, in this sense, needed to be covered up. God had to take innocent animals that had nothing to do with any of this and sacrifice them to cover Adam and Eve so that they could live. This is where we're getting this this idea from. That God is instituting this kind of sacrifice in in what's happening and what's going on. Now, this... I don't want to say imagery, but this thing that's happening with the with the sacrificing of an animal. God has then taught that to Adam. Adam taught that to his children. Okay, and this is where we come into the whole Cain and Abel thing, you know, about Cain's, you know, killing Abel because his sacrifice, you know, he was basically a farmer and brought like the first fruits of all of his trees and everything like that, and you know, and and did that sort of thing, where um, Abel was a shepherd and brought, you know, uh, a land, lamb, brought animals. Now, killing an animal is a difficult thing to do. You're, you're taking life. That's what's happening. Um, especially if it's an innocent animal. And it's not as easy as taking your best crops and throwing them on a fire. Okay. There's bloodletting that has to be done. Um, there's, you know, fear that has to be content with. That is all this stuff. It is a true sacrifice both on the, the animal that is being sacrificed, of course, but on the person that has to make the sacrifice, has to do this. Since Cain refused to do that and refused to sacrifice in the same way that God had done to cover Adam and to cover Eve and that Adam and Eve showed them what, was necess- what God required for a sacrifice, what was you know, said there, this is why his sacrifice what what he gave was not respected, and Abel's was respected and then of course he ended up you know uh, killing his brother, and um that whole thing was was kind of going on so the importance of an animal sacrifice is uh necessary from the beginning of Genesis that it's a living sacrifice now one thing that we have to understand here is what the concept of blood means within christianity and within judaism and and this time blood is seen as the life force okay it is seen as a living essence okay even in some pagan communities it's seen as living as as being the the main part of the life of any creature. Because if you separate the body and the blood, death is imminent. It takes place. So if that is where the life is in any creature, then by partaking of that, you then get that power and that life force from that creature. There are some pagans that feel that if you drink the blood of bulls, you will get the power of the bull. If you drink, you know, uh, blood of the tiger, you will get tiger power. You will get, you know, that sort of understanding. Blood is seen as as positive in the sense that it is it is what life is. And later on in Deuteronomy, the drinking of blood is condemned because this is what pagans do and this is what they're thinking. They totally condemn this, okay? And so this bloody animal sacrifice has to be done and the blood has to be drained from the animal and you know, the, the animal is then, uh, sacrificed and put on the altar. And when it is burnt up, that is showing that this sacrifice is then raising up to God. Okay. It's, it's, it's heading up in that direction. Um, that God is, is accepting that sacrifice and he is accepting the sins Uh, of, of, of that sacrifice also. The sacrifice wasn't just done just because. There were reasons for it. And in order for the remission of sins to take place, this is what had to be done. Now, in order for a... Well, I don't know if I want to skip up to, to this far yet, but I'll, I'll, just, I'll just keep talking on this. I wanted to get into what the priesthood meant in, um, in, in Jewish society here, but I don't want to get there quite yet. because I, I want to keep kind of going with, with this and, and, and what's happening and what's going on. Now, people were making sacrifices because it was uh, the right thing to do in this way. With Jesus Christ being our sacrifice, his blood, being that He was fully human, and also that he is fully divine, he is, is fully God makes his sacrifice immeasurably greater than this. Throughout the Old Testament, they, the, the prophets will talk about how, you know, the, the blood of bulls and goats and so really doesn't do anything. Okay. It never really removed sin. It never never really did anything. But Christ's blood did. It was pointing to what was something greater, something that's going to come. Okay. Something that's that's even better. This is a type and shadow of what is happening. But the point has to be here that something that is innocent has to die in order for you to live, in order for your sins to be forgiven. Okay, you have to do something. It has to be uh, on, on your part. You have to remove this sinfulness. Okay, it's taking place. Interesting thing, thing about this, though, is a man by the name of Melchizedek, who, according to um, Scripture, has no genealogy. We don't really know much about him, except that he was high priest, and he was also king, of Salem, which later became Jerusalem um, or Jerusalem. I guess we would pronounce it. He is the one who Abram, before he became Abraham, okay, before the covenant went to him and paid his tithes, gave his offerings to Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek, the sacrifice that he made, which is interesting, is bread and wine. It's not an animal bloody sacrifice. In a time of bloody animal sacrifices, here you have somebody who is both high priest and king dealing with the father of the Jewish people Physically, and or I guess well, taking grandfather maybe, um, however you want to say, because there was Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and and um, that's where you got the uh, twelve tribes of Israel from, and uh, you know, Judah, and all, all that stuff. Everything that was happening that the Messiah then came through, that that Christ came through that lineage. But Paul, when talking about justification, and we and we discuss this, goes back to Abraham. It goes back to Abram and says, you know, before the law, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we discussed that in earlier podcasts and what that meant. So this genesis of the concept we get of justification that Paul is bringing out with Abraham and with David, the, the two Jewish witnesses that you need is any good You know, Jew does in the court of law to to prove something. You need two witnesses. Um, He goes back to that. And here's somebody who is going to somebody who is both high priest and king. Christ is high priest and king. Within the liturgy, generally, um, if I'm not mistaken... Your offering is given first, and then the. Um, it's it's interesting within within liturgical worship here. You have you actually have two. You have the liturgy of the word and the liturgy liturgy of the sacrament. Um, so you would have this occur before, um, the liturgy of the sacrament. So here is an example, Old Testament example. Of a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of a high priest and king with an unbloody sacrifice. Now, Roman Catholics will say that the Eucharist is an unbloody sacrifice, okay? It is a sacrifice revisited, okay? It's, but it's unbloody. It's not as though Christ is being slain over and over and over again. It's as though it's an unbloody sacrifice that's being done. Um, the reason why this has to be done is because of our sinfulness and, you know, what's generally occurring. Now, whenever we have this thing about animals and animal sacrifice and why it's so meaningful to us in, um... The book, uh, The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, in the section under Sacrifice Before the Coming of Christ. Um, uh, Father Michael says here that uh, domestic animals have been generally chosen for sacrifice for two reasons chiefly. First, because they stood in nearest relation to man. And consequently, were the most fitting substitutes to bear a penalty which he had incurred, and secondly, because by their gentleness and innocence they served to represent the meek and spotless Lamb of God. So this segues us a little bit further now in Genesis, or in in the Old Testament, in the Torah, to uh, the Exodus, and to what's going on with the um, uh, with the uh, the the. The plagues that were occurring, um, Moses says to Pharaoh, "You know, let my people go." And you know he he doesn't. And like you know, all these plagues take place. But the very last plague that has to take place is that all of the firstborn is going to die in the the house of Pharaoh and and all of Egypt and everyone except in the um. Uh, the the Hebrew people, okay, and here's why. The reason why, and I gotta kind of jump ahead while I'm talking. I should have I should have marked all this stuff in my Bible as I'm moving, but I'm like kind of looking through and talking at the same time. But what's going on is that the understanding of death coming, and this is the the yeah the last one, uh, the last plague that's that that's occurring. Death. Is going to pass over the Hebrews, okay? And here's what's going on. I believe it's in um, uh, uh, chapter 11 of Exodus. He he's talking about how the firstborn of everybody is going to die. Okay, this is what he's telling uh, Pharaoh. In chapter 12, this is where we get these instructions, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read this to you, and and so you can hear what's going on and remember um, what, you know, father Michael, what I just read to you um, about, you know, the reason why you're using a domesticated animal in a sense, an animal that's very close to the family. Uh, Chapter 12, verse one, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that on the 10th of this month, Each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household, okay? I'm going to break this down as I'm reading it for you on what's going on. You're to select a lamb, and you're to bring it into your house. It becomes your pet, okay? On the 10th day, that's what you're doing. You're bringing in your pet. Kids are probably going to name it, going to play with it. And if the house is too small for a lamb, let him share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby, okay? Okay? in proportion to the number of persons. There's a reason why this. Um, you shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Because this lamb that you're bringing into your house, you're going to eventually eat it. All right, now this lamb, chapter or verse 5, uh, your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the 14th day of this month. Which means it's going to live in your house for four days. Four days, you're going to have this cute little lamb in your house with you, in there with your family, twenty-four-seven. Kids playing with it. You, you know, looking at it, falling in love with it. You know. Okay. So now you have this lamb with you for four days. Lambs are cute. They're soft. You know, they're 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 fun. You know, they're they're year old. They're they're spry. Um, they're in the, the prime of their life. All right, and then. You assemble a congregation of the Israelites, and at twilight, you, sh- you slaughter it. Israelites are, shall slaughter it at twilight. Then you take some of the blood, and you put it on the doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they are to eat it. Okay? So you take you know some blood, and you're putting it on your doorposts. Alright, so this lamb that's been living with you for four days that your kids love, then no, don't don't kill don't kill, you know, whatever lamb chops or you know, whatever they're naming it. I don't know, you know. Um, and don't don't do that, and you know, the kids are probably crying and everybody's upset and that this this you know is what has to be done. And then you take the blood and you put it on there. And that same night you eat the flesh of the lamb. Okay? That lamb that you killed, you cook it and eat it. And you eat it over a roasted fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cook it any way in any way with water, but roasted head, legs and entrails over the fire. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It's a Passover offering to the Lord. For that night, I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt, I the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood... I will pass over you. So no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be to you one of remembrance. You will celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. You shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them. Only what every person is to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time and to this day. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover also. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. No leaven shall be found in your houses for seven days. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the community of Israel. Whether he is a stranger or a citizen of the country, you shall eat nothing leavened, in all your settlements, you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, there's a big debate within the Eucharist on whether or not to use bread that's leavened or a wafer that's unleavened. It goes back and forth, and it's because of this 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 Passover understanding of eating the lamb. Okay. So, verse 21 goes on to say, Moses then summoned them to all the elders of Israel and said to them. Go pick out lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover offering. Now, this is important right here. Pay attention. If you've been zoning out, listen up. Then he says, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and apply some of it to the blood that is in the basin to the lentil and to the two doorposts. All right. Take some hyssop branches, dip them in the blood. When Christ was hanging on the cross and he said, I thirst. They had a sponge that was in some sour wine. And they dipped it in it and they offered it to him. And the branch that it was was a hyssop branch. The hyssop branch that was needed for the wine. Now, I'm going to return back to that because the understanding of um, the, 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 the cups the four cups of Passover that's, that's drank during Passover here, during this time within a, within a Seder meal. This is very important because this is what Jesus did in the upper room discourse in which he said, this is my body and this is my blood. So I want you to keep that in your head. Okay. That what is used to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts so that death will pass over them and will not harm any of them is what is used to give wine, sour wine, eh, probably more like vinegar, but it was wine, um, form of wine, to Christ was on a hyssop branch. Okay. I'll continue this on before I'm going to end this podcast here, uh, roughly around the hour point, and then... I'm going to be continuing in the next podcast because there's a lot more to get through, a lot more, um, especially when we get into the uh, New Testament here, everything that's happening. Um, hopefully, you're seeing what an impact this is this is having here. Because um, let me let me continue reading and then I'll, I'll muse a little bit more. Uh, for when the Lord goes through to smite the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the lentils and on the two doorposts, and the Lord will uh, on the lentil and the two doorposts, and the Lord will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter and smite your home. You shall observe this as an institution for all time for you and for your descendants, and when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised, you shall observe this right and when your children ask, what do you mean by this right, you shall say. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, because he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but saved our houses. When the people then bowed low in homage, and the Israelites went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Notice that saved our houses. Because death is coming the blood of the lamb is what's saving them. But there's another important f- fact here. It's the feast. They have to keep the feast. They have to eat it. They have to eat the lamb. Even if you don't like mutton, you have to eat the lamb. The lamb has to be eaten. You can't say, well, I'm going to make some uh, lamb biscuits. I'm just going to make some, something in the shape of a lamb and I'll eat that instead. No, the lamb has to be eaten. The actual lamb, not a different kind of meat because you don't like lamb and you'll say, well, I'll just have a steak instead. No, the lamb has to be eaten. The blood has to be shed. The lamb has to be eaten, physically eaten. I'm going to say that again. Jesus Christ is the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, who saves us. The lamb must be eaten. The lamb must be eaten in order for death to pass over you and you have new life and you have it more abundantly your households are saved by the lamb of god by the blood that was put on the doorpost where you walk through that's covering your house on a hyssop branch the same hyssop branch that wine is delivered to christ for on while he's on the cross and he tastes it and he says it is finished the lamb must be eaten Sacrifice must happen. Literally, not figuratively. Nothing about this is figurative. This feast is kept every single year. The Passover meal, the Passover celebration, what it means, being brought out of Egypt. The bitter herbs that are eaten is to remind them of of the slavery, their time in captivity. I've eaten a a Seder meal before. It's not the most tasty meal that you could possibly have. But the reason why here is moved into the Christian liturgy and of the Eucharist and of what it means in communion. There's a lot of weight here. I would like to continue on with this, but it's going to be a really, really, really long podcast if I go through everything. So I'm sorry I have to stop here. And uh, next week's podcast, we're going to pick up from this from this idea, from this place of um, why you know this this has to be done. And there's there's a few more things that that you know come out later on. Um, I, I can't remember exactly uh, where it's at, but in um, in this discussion uh, in in Exodus and what it's telling, it talks about that this is the way that we are ransomed. To God That God has uh, accepted the payment of our sins um, through this. This is how they understood it. This is how the Jews understood it. That by doing this, you have the Lamb of God who has come to cover our sins. But John the Baptist says about Christ in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, John the Apostle, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. I want to quickly bring up this passage here that I, I alluded to a little bit earlier. I had to stop everything and go back and, and, and find it for you real quick because I, I it's it's a very interesting one. It's in Exodus um, uh, chapter thirteen. Um, whenever the the Passover is being you know explained. Uh, to someone and, you know, what's going on with it and so. And it says that, um, uh, we'll, we'll pick up in um, roughly verse 13, I guess 13b, it technically would be, it um, says, and you must redeem every firstborn male among your children. Okay, you must redeem all of them, the firstborn male among your children. And when, in time to come, your son asks you, saying, what does this mean? You shall say to him, it was with a mighty hand that the Lord brought us out, of, out from Egypt, the house of bondage. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord slew every firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of both man and beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord every first male issue of the womb, but redeem every firstborn among my sons. That is an incredible statement when we think about Jesus being the only Son of God, the only unique Son of God, the only begotten, the firstborn of all creation. That we are called, because of what happened in in Egypt here, that the first male, the firstborn from the womb, that is what was to be Sacrificed in in the uh, Exodus um, when the plague came, or the the um, the yeah the tenth plague and, and death came and killed the firstborn of everyone. The firstborn is what was required, but what was taken instead was the uh, the firstborn of of the beast that the the Jewish people then were uh, uh, sacrificing and that that was then acceptable as a redemption to the Lord. The sons were redeemed. The firstborn of Israel were redeemed by the Passover sacrifice, were, were purchased. The word redeem that we use in English um, has... Uh, A lot of different definitions to it, roughly all saying the same thing, but specifically its origin is a late middle English, and it's in the sense of buy back, to purchase back, okay? Um, The second uh, verbiage use is uh, to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. Um, The first definition is to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of something, okay? Okay. Of a person, it's to atone or make amends for something. Uh, But in this case, it's to save from sin. But this is the word "redeem" that's being used in this sense. That every firstborn was redeemed. It's pretty incredible there, in my opinion, I think. Hey, thanks for listening to Theology Pit. Uh, Please... You know, Go to samsonstick.com Check us out Check out more things there You can donate if you like um, Check us out on Facebook On The Theology Pit Or uh, send me an email About what you like Or what you don't like uh, From what you hear uh, uh, Samson at samsonstick.com It's S-A-M-S-O-N At S-A-M-S-O-N S-T-I-C-K Dot com And now it's time To close down the pit